0: Welcome to Ubaldi Reports. With the conclusion of the first Republican debate for president having just ended, this podcast on Ubaldi Reports will analyze and discuss the impact of this crucial debate. The Republican contenders for president all have spoken how they will jumpstart the lackluster U.S. economy and deal with the myriad of foreign policy challenges, and at the same time, deal with a host of other issues. They will have to confront upon assuming the presidency. The question we'll be asking, who shined and who stumbled out of the gate? And did the candidates meet expectations? Now, on this podcast, we will be speaking with Ashley Intataglia, a senior vice president for the Victory Group, a strategic communication company which produces television and digital media campaigns for corporate and political clients around the country. Now let's welcome Ashley. How's it going, Ashley?
1: It's going great. Thanks for having me on the show today, John. Well, it's,
0: it's a pleasure to have you on the show. So what did you think of the debate?
1: I thought it was very interesting. Um, first time that we've seen it broken up into two different debates, which I thought actually worked out pretty well. There was a lot of feedback that came uh, after the 5 o'clock debate and after the 9 o'clock debate on on how people perceived the different approach Uh, The 5 o'clock was a little unique in that it didn't have an audience versus the 9 p.m. And a lot of people, their feedback was that they really liked the format of the 5 o'clock debate. They liked that there wasn't that distraction of people hooting and hollering and that the candidates weren't performing for them, that they were more straightforward and focused on what the moderators were doing and what they were asking them. Um, But overall, I thought it was a success. They had 17 candidates to manage and they got all of them on the stage uh, between the two debates, and I think that the first one in the books was a huge success for everyone.
0: No, I would agree. I think the the first debate was really good. I think one candidate, in my opinion, stood out. And I think when they went into the second debate at the nine o'clock hour, that I like I like how Fox handled both candidates. But who I mean, the both candidates, both formats between the debates, who did you think in the first debate stood out from um, in your impression?
1: Well, I think the the shining star of the first debate, and maybe of both debates, was definitely uh, Carly Fiorina. She had some of the lowest polling numbers going into yesterday afternoon, um, and yet she was the shining star, I thought. She commanded the stage at the 5 o'clock debate. Uh, She looked like the adult in the room. She was concise in her answers. Um, she didn't abuse the time limit that she was given for her responses. And no matter what the question was that was thrown at her, how it was thrown at her, or if she was in the middle of rebutting a question, she sounded very well versed and she was able to formulate and articulate her answers very quickly. Um, and I think that you know she definitely won some – she scored some points on – On a line that we've heard quite a bit from her, that you know, her first two calls and as president, one the first one would be to uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu in Israel, let him know that we're fully on his side, and then the second one would be to Iran to let them know that we're fully engaged in taking a leadership role again. So I thought she she sounded smart, articulate, very concise in her answers. Uh, She's definitely earned her place. At the big dogs table for the next debate, and a lot of people were saying that they wish that they had taken her right from the five o'clock debate and brought her back for the nine o'clock debate last night.
0: No, I would agree. I think she, I think she did well on the stylistic approach. You, she was very presidential, very clear in what she was saying, and I agree. I think she was more the adult in the room, but then on a the substance um, style point of view on this, I think she came out clearer than anybody else during that debate. The one person that I was surprised was Senator Lindsey Graham. I think when they asked him about the economy, he jumped over to ISIS, and he seemed to stick his – everything he did was on foreign policy instead of the question at hand.
1: Yeah, Lindsey, surprisingly, and for whatever reason, um, he's been in the process for long enough. I I was surprised that he came off looking like the one-trick pony last night Um, he somehow didn't matter what the question was like you said he kinda kept gravitating toward that foreign policy perspective and isis which obviously was important that was you know a big chunk of both debates last night but it got awkward when some of the questions revolved around um, abortion or same-sex marriage and he somehow found a way to turn the question back around to talking about isis and and iran and foreign policy so uh, disappointing night for lindsey graham definitely But the other one that i was surprised about that I had high hopes for. I think my expectations were really high for him going in uh, because he just missed being part of the 9 o'clock debate uh, by such a small margin was Rick Perry. They've done a lot of work to rebrand him this go around. He's got a new look. His ads are really sharp uh, online and on, on TV, the few that I have seen. So I had high hopes for him, and his opening statement was pretty weak. And uh, he 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 regained a little bit of traction on the one question that he had about immigration. He had a lot of passion in that one. But other than that, I, I didn't see a new Rick Perry like we've been led to believe we were going to see this go around. No,
0: I would agree, I would agree with your assessment of that. I mean, the last go around in 2012, he came out and didn't have any substance to his answers like he just kind of showed up. This time he was a little different. He was going to be rebranded, and I don't think he quite got to where he needed to go. So I was, I would agree with your assessment. There was a, a, kind of a lacking there with for Rick Perry. But I think in the first debate, the thing that I'm kind of looking for in all the candidates is more specifics of what you're going to do when we become president or if whoever he or she is when they become president. And I think I missed that in the first debate. And then Carly Firioni really did, I think, help, you know, hit my expectations on that.
1: Yeah, I agree. And, you know, the one thing that I would say I was very surprised didn't come up in the five o'clock debate that eventually did come up in, in the later debate, I was kind of sitting around around waiting for it was The issue of race relations and what took place in Ferguson and Baltimore, um, that didn't come up at all, surprisingly, during the 5 o'clock debate. It was a big issue, the Black Lives Matter movement um, in the last few months, and I really thought at some point that they would challenge the candidates with how they would have handled that situation. It did finally come up in the second half of the 9 o'clock debate, but it didn't it didn't take as much time on stage as I had anticipated that it would, and the other issue that didn't come up last night as much as I thought was how the candidates would tackle the issue with the VA. Again, it didn't come up at all during the five o'clock debate. It made uh, it came around once during the nine o'clock debate, but not not with the commanding presence that I expected it to.
0: You make I mean I, I agree that came up at the uh, the nine o'clock debate, and I was almost at the end. When I think a, um, a widow of a veteran mentioned the VA, and I would have thought with all the talk about you know, scaling back government, that that would have been one of the top issues they would have discussed, the VA. And that just didn't seem to... Come up. I don't know if the moderators didn't ask that question or weren't, or just didn't think about that question. Right. But that should have been asked.
1: Yeah. Now that you brought that up, I remember seeing somebody approached Megyn Kelly at the table and brought up veterans in one of those last questions, and it was, it was as if, oh yeah, we forgot. Let's talk about veterans. Um, very surprising, given how much the the military and foreign policy played into a good chunk of the debate. That the VA question and the scandal that has surrounded the VA never. Uh, reared its head for more than that one question in the entire two debates.
0: Yeah. And that that was just surprising to me because I was kind of, you know, being a veteran and served in Iraq and Afghanistan, I was kind of waiting for somebody to jump in on that. Because if you're talking about scaling back government, you look at the VA, the only other person who mentioned something about veterans was a Marco Rubio. Mm-hmm. And but that was just, in relationship, I think it was to the healthcare uh, question, but there really wasn't a lot of issues regarding uh, veterans issues at this debate.
1: Yeah, it was very surprising. Now, going into the second
0: debate, I know there was a lot of expectation, especially with Donald Trump being the, um, the top getter in the polls. Who do you think had the most to gain and the most to lose in this first debate?
1: Well, I think the person who had the most to prove during the 9 o'clock debate was Marco Rubio. Um, Going into last night's debate, he had this weight kind of hanging over him that he was – he was the young candidate, he was the the immature candidate, the one that had the least amount of experience. Uh, Some of those other people on stage with him were 20 years his senior, and there was kind of been this cloud hanging over him that he's the kid. Can he hang with the big dogs? And I thought last night he did a very good job of proving um, that not only is he charismatic and and a a young generational um, candidate in this race. But he really commanded a lot of those issues, especially when it came to the immigration issue. Um, The question, I believe, had originally gotten thrown to Donald Trump, and he kind of danced his way about his theories on Mexico and them sending people across the border. And Marco rebutted on the question and, and brought up the issue of, you know, it's really, it's Honduras and Guatemala where a lot of these people are coming from now, and that most of the calls he's getting are from people who have been stuck in the process for six, seven, eight years trying to do this legally, questioning, would it just be easier to come across the border illegally? I thought that he showed he was extremely knowledgeable, um, and he definitely came out looking like a winner last night and proving that he deserves to be on that stage as much as anybody else.
0: No, and you you make a good point. I remember he was talking about immigration, and it seemed like he had more... Knowledge of the whole immigration issue, mentioning most of the immigrants now, especially after last summer's Mm -hmm. um, wave from Central America. That's where I was questioning Donald Trump because Chris Wallace had asked him when he made these um, comments before the debate, talking about Mexico is sending its criminals to the United States. And when Chris Wallace pressed him on it, where do you get that information from? And he really couldn't answer that. He just kind of went back to, well, I went down to the border and I talked to the Border Patrol, and this is what they said. And he really didn't have a fine, defined um, answer beyond, let's put a wall on the border.
1: Yeah, and I think that that's an area where – as much as I like the unfilteredness of Donald Trump, that's an area that I think he's gonna get some resistance on moving forward is you know he can say all these outrageous things, but once you get into a debate forum, you're gonna have to back some of it up at some point. And you can't just stand up there and talk to a camera um, without getting any pushback or have to prove what you're talking about. And that, that I think showed a few you know chink, cracks in the armor last night was when you really push him on some of these outrageous things, can he really back it up with facts? And on that particular question, I didn't feel that he did a great job. I knew where I think he wanted to go with it. He just didn't articulate what he was trying to say uh, clear enough.
0: Yeah, and I'm, I'm not sure if – because he kept saying that, oh, I'm not going to prepare for this. I'm just – I know what's going on. It just didn't seem like he prepared well enough his answers because in another aspect – they asked him about you gave uh, contributions to political campaigns, mm-hmm. most na- notably Hillary Clinton's campaign. And he's he kind of made sure that hey we all do it. We're all expecting something.
1: Right. And when
0: he was pressed on it, well, what did you get from it? Well, she came to my wedding. <laughs> and I think people are getting are tired of rich people giving to campaigns. Yeah. And I think that resonated with people. Well, wait a minute. Now you're not attacking Washington, you're kind of part of the solution. You're part of the problem.
1: Yeah. And there was, there's always definitely a little bit of arrogance from him, no matter, you know, no matter what the format is, whether he's just producing a video on his own or talking to the camera or he's giving an interview or now we've seen him in a debate format. Um, But he, I think the thing for Donald Trump is that he needs to learn not to get in his own way he made some really good statements last night and going into the debate people have really resonated with that unfiltered style that he has and I thought it was interesting that several of the other candidates actually brought that up Carly Fiorina instead of attacking him made the point that Donald Trump has tapped into an anger and a frustration that Americans have and several of the candidates from the nine o'clock debate referenced or alluded to the same thing, but he's got to tone down some of the really ridiculous, controversial stuff so that some of the things that actually make sense uh, can take center stage in the media the next day rather than Donald Trump gets into catfight with Megyn Kelly. That, unfortunately... Took the reins of everything that was talked about today in relation to Donald Trump last night, versus some of the other things that he said that were actually pretty smart and pretty straightforward about what the country is facing with facing right now.
0: No, and you're right on that. He's got to tone that down. But I think as we go deeper into the campaign season, and when you, we get to um, the first primary in January, people have got to make a decision: is this somebody you want carrying that? that nuclear football, that briefcase that's going to make that decision. And did he look presidential getting into that cat fight with Megan Kelly and making these bombastic statements? So if he's going to do better, he's got to tone that down, but he's got to bring more substance to his answers. Cause I think people, they understand the problems in America. I got that, but now we need to have solutions. What would you, what would you do differently to differentiate from the other candidates, from the Democrats and what would you do to differently that Barack Obama didn't do or did as president?
1: Yeah, and I, I think it's very um, – he has a lot of confidence in himself to say that he's not going to prep for something and just go into it and wing it, which is fine. You can do that for a debate. But as the president of the United States, when there are matters related to people's security and their lives and the livelihood of this country at stake – um, I think we would all like to believe that that our president would would do a little bit of preparation and not just walk into a negotiation or go to give a state of the Union address with and just wing it um, so he's got to weigh the the PR perception of the things that he's doing as well and not just I'm going to go out there and and charm the pants off everybody with my unfiltered style. that's only going to get him so far ironically, because of Donald Trump and his very out there antics. He's making what used to be the out there candidate look very toned down and subtle, which is Chris Christie, who I thought also had a very good night last night. You
0: know, I, no, I would, I'm sorry. I would agree. I think Chris Christie did have a good night. And the one thing that I was impressed with him, he got into this discussion with um, Mike Huckabee on the entitlement program. And I can't remember which one of the um, moderators, was trying to pin down Mike Huckabee. What would you do? You make this statement. You want to do this with the entitlements programs, but he never got into specifics where Chris Christie did.
1: Yeah, and you know, again, he proved himself last night that he's not just the other hothead candidate on the stage. Which I know a lot of people tend to think about him. He's got that New Jersey attitude um, which, you know, if you're not from that or you haven't been, or I grew up with an Irish mom from New York and an Italian dad from New York. So I'm very used to that style of communicating, but for some people that's a little off putting, um, and, and they're not sure how to, to, how to read it. But what he did last night, partly because Donald Trump is so over the top, uh, made him look far more toned down, but he backed up his style of being unfiltered with facts. And I thought that, that statement that he made about, um, uh, entitlement spending makes up 71% of the spending budget, and yet we've spent an hour and a half talking about the other 29%. He looked so smart and on top of that issue, and I think it really helped to validate him, just like with Marco Rubio, as deserving to be up there on stage with everybody else. No, and
0: that's the one thing that impressed me with Chris Christie when he made that point, because we've always talked about these other part of the budget, but we haven't talked about entitlement programs. And he really got a little bit more specific. And you, I like your point that you brought up. I'm full-blooded Italian, so I'm well-versed on how that works very well. But he really got specific on that where Mike Huckabee kind of told everybody the problem, this is what we got to do, or this is, the, this is the problem, but never really got specific of how he would fix it, and I think that's where I would fault him on that,
1: yeah, and I, you know, I think as we move farther into the the debates and off the top of my head, I'm drawing a blank on how many we actually have scheduled for the Republicans, but you know, at some point, each of these candidates is going to have to do more than what you're what you're talking about, Huckabee did where he just laid out the problem at some point, all of them. Are going to be expected to have answers like Chris Christie or Marco Rubio or Carly Fiorina, where they have what the solution is that they're going to put forward, what the principles are going to be that they govern by, and and work through some of these problems. We're only going to take so much of this rhetorical back and forth commentary. Um, you know, we know what the problems are. We don't need to hear it hashed out over every single debate. So I, I think it was very smart for Christie. Um, and and Rubio and Carly Fiorina to come out of the gate like that because it shows, I think, what we can expect to see from them for the duration of the campaign season is that they're not just going to get up there and talk. They're going to tell you what they're going to do about it.
0: Now, maybe as we go, I mean, I'm not sure. I, I would do the same way. I can't remember how many debates they're going to have. But maybe when they start to whittle down the candidates up there, they can get more than just one minute. But if you have a minute, you better get right into the um the heart of the matter instead of just telling us the problem
1: yeah I I agree and you know surprisingly last night and maybe it was more tame because it was the first one um but I thought everybody was a little bit more well behaved and conscious of the time than I remember it being in 2012 so maybe that's just everybody's getting warmed up and and testing the waters right now but i was impressed how well everybody for the most part stayed within the time frames there were no major spats minus christy and paul's little blowout on the nsa (laughs) which i think christy won hands down he made some really good points about that so we'll we'll see what happens moving forward
0: you're right on that and um yeah that was a i think christy did win hands down with Rand paul on that that um particular issue now, which candidate kind of really connected with the voters?
1: Which candidate connected with the voters? Well, because
0: the reason I'm asking that question, because when you give, when you out on the campaign trail, and I used to work for a political consulting firm, mm-hmm. you always want to be able to connect, get your message out, but you want to really connect with the voters. So which one do you think really did?
1: Well, I think I think Marco Rubio did a good job of connecting with, um, Hispanic voters last night I think he did a very good job of connecting with voters who are dealing with the immigration issue firsthand a lot of the ones who have had to deal with that process to become legalized citizens I think he was he was very smart on this that issue and got a lot of people's attention who have personal ties to that um, and and I thought that the way that he told his story, um, was was very articulate, and I think there was a lot of passion in how he delivered it. The other one, though, that I, I think I, – here's a strange thing. Out of the entire 9 o'clock debate, I wouldn't say that there was any one particular candidate that really made me feel emotional about them. Like, man, I would just go out and knock door to door for this guy – um, but there were the two moments were with Rubio talking about immigration and his personal family story. But the other one that that struck me and made me a little bit emotional was when Christie was talking specifically about 9/11 and the work that he did as an attorney uh, that he took office on September 10th, which I didn't know that as an as a state attorney. And the next day, obviously, we had the worst terror attack on our country since Pearl Harbor, and. The world changed for him, and he relayed a very personal story about people that he had lost, that his wife was a few blocks away from the Twin Towers, and anybody who is a red-blooded American, I think, was able to really connect with him on that. Um, And even though it's been you know, over a decade now since it happened, I still think that people felt that connection to him, that this is why he's so passionate about what he does, because he was so close to it.
0: Yeah, and the one person that I thought connected in one aspect that I could relate to is when Marco Rubio mentioned that he had college debt and that he went from yes. you know paycheck to paycheck. And I think, because I remember the New York Times wrote a story about, I think it was about a month ago, they were critical of him saying he did certain things, he had this huge boat, and it turned out to a regular fishing boat. Well, everybody has boats here down in Florida. right? But when he really connected is when he mentioned... Yeah. I graduated from law school with debt. What college students is not coming out of college with debt.
1: Yeah. And I think
0: it, he that personalized it.
1: It did. And I you know, the way that he articulated it that he he just got out of debt within the last four years, I think that's a very real thing that a lot of people are still dealing with. Um and he's not a sixty some year old candidate talking about debt from 40 years ago. This is something that he himself has just personally gone through. and Doing it in a very um, non-confrontational way, he, he got his jab in there to Hillary that if he ends up going up against her, she'll never be able to pose that argument that she knows what it's like to live paycheck to paycheck because he's done that. You know, he experienced that with his own family personally and then with himself working through the college debt and everything else. I agree with you on that. I I think with a younger group of voters, he resonated probably a little differently than some of the other candidates did because we can all relate to that.
0: And then the other thing from a small business perspective, when somebody on Facebook, and I can't remember the person's name, asked, um, asked the candidates, what would you do about small businesses and trying to improve small business and entrepreneurial climate? And then he really had an answer for that, talked about the problem, but then he went into some of the solutions that we can jumpstart the economy by helping small businesses in the entrepreneurial. So I think he did really well. The one person that I was surprised was John Kasich mm-hmm. when he mentioned that I went out and I had to learn, I went to learn about. What businesses go through? Well, I looked at that. I mean, listened to that, and I'm like, wait a minute! You had to learn it. Well, I'm living it. Right. So that's the one takeaway I would have from him on that one.
1: Yeah, I think Kasich is a qualified candidate. I was I was less impressed with him last night. Um, I'm hoping that more, you know, he'll do better in the next debate. But he, Pataki, I thought was decent in the in the five o'clock debate. Um, I would actually like to see he and Kasich swap for the next one and see how Pataki does on the stage with some of the 9 o'clock candidates. Um, but Kasich had some good answers, but he you know, he kind of had this sleepy persona about him that didn't really get me fired up about what he was saying. It didn't wasn't necessarily that what he was saying was bad. It was just that he didn't have that fire in his belly that I was looking for.
0: No, and I would agree. Now, if you talk about fire in the belly – the one person we really kind of haven't talked about so far is what was your impression of Ted Cruz and Ben Carson?
1: Well, the winning closing statement of the night definitely goes to Carson. He's you got a it. <laughs> he's a smart guy. I like him. Um, unfortunately my my superficial issue with him is that he he delivers to camera or during a debate the way you would expect a pediatric doctor too. He has a very toned down way of speaking, um that, you know, again, he has some really great things and he had some some awesome one liners last night. Oh, um, he did. But it's the delivery of it that I, I know that he can't help. It's just the way that he is um, but I want to see him get a little bit angry or a little bit passionate, but he has that sense where you can see him in the pediatric ward just keeping everybody calm, and I think that's great about him, but I wanted him to just get so fired up last night, but winning closing definitely went to him. He was funny. He finally got everybody laughing when it was way overdue for everybody to laugh at somebody other than Donald Trump and his ridiculousness, um, but I, I like him. I could see him as Director of Health and Human Services. I don't know that I can see him as, as President. I think he's got too much on-the-job training he needs in terms of foreign policy and national defense and maybe at a different time uh, when that wasn't such a hot topic in our country right now where it wasn't such a big concern, a candidate could get away with that. But I think at this moment in our world's history, we can't have somebody who needs on-the-job training in those areas. Yeah. Yeah.
0: He does need to kind of get a little bit more excited, a little more energetic because he just was very lethargic. The last part of it was funny.
1: Yeah. Yep. But he
0: just needs to get a little bit more. I'm not saying he has to get, you know, screaming and angry like a Donald Trump, but just show a little bit more passion. And I would agree on one aspect that and I would think this for, for most of the candidates, I mean, him particularly, they didn't. Really formulate a vision. If someone who's been in the military, who's studied the Middle East extensively, mm-hmm. I don't think really the candidates talk strategically about what they would do different than what Barack Obama's doing. They talk tactics. Yeah. And that's, I want the candidates to really articulate a strategic vision. I haven't heard that from really any of the candidates, especially Lindsey Graham, who I would have suspected should have had better answers than he did.
1: Well, if you if you go strictly by Lindsey Graham, I think he scared every mother and father in the country successfully yesterday afternoon oh, yes. and probably boosted some happy hour sales because everybody's got this vision now of Lindsey Graham dropping ground troops in cuz he definitely brought that brought that home yesterday that that would be his vision. Uh which I think there's some merit to what he's saying. I think that we need to be realistic of the fact that, you know, we're not we're not going to wipe out Isis um, and the problems that we've got over in the Middle East with with a bunch of drone strikes or with a bunch of airstrikes that are taking between an hour and five hours to get clearance for—that's ridiculous. There are there. That's a whole other can of worms to get into. Um, but you brought up Ted Cruz a minute ago, and I Correct. thought that he had Ted Cruz had the most unfortunate timing of anybody in the debate last night. Uh, this was at the begin, close to the beginning of the nine o'clock debate. Where you had uh, Donald Trump had just finished out his soliloquy on on not being the candidate with the filter and not having time to worry about tone and everything else, and then a question got thrown to Cruz, and he tried to offer his own version of how he's the candidate who's going to be the rogue that goes to Washington and he's going to shake everybody up, and if you're looking for a puppet, that he's not your guy, and. I think if you listened close enough, you could hear somebody giggle in the audience when that happened. Because if he had followed anybody else with that that question, he would have been fine. But coming right off the heels of Trump and his delivery of that, it was almost laughable that compared to Trump, he was going to be the guy without a filter to go to Washington and shake things up.
0: Well, because remember, he was the person that was supposed to be the – the outsider challenging Washington yeah. until Donald Trump came in, and Donald Trump took a lot of his thunder out. Yep. But Ted Cruz is very is very smart, very intelligent. is a great debater. Mm-hmm. I just think in the format with so many candidates, even remember I think Ben Carson made the made the quip uh, oh, "Well, finally, I get to say something."
1: <laughs> Poor Ben. Uh, luckily for him, though, the the only other person that uh, got less time than him, I think, was Ron Paul. Probably for good reason. Yeah, Ron Paul, I mean, he did all right. I think he was a little,
0: at least in my opinion, unclear of – he said what he wouldn't do, but he never really articulated a strategy or a vision for what he would do against ISIS or in the Middle East or, or for that matter foreign policy. Yeah, and
1: overall I just thought it was his body language and delivery on everything last night was just overly very combative. Correct. And, and I wasn't sure why. It was, you know, somebody must have really made him mad before they went out on stage or, or whatever it was. He was just strikingly combative and even, you know, when they were when they started out the debate with that question about pledging um, your your support to whoever the nominee would be, there wasn't really a reason for him to lash out at Trump, but he felt this need to. And for the guy who's kind of the isolationist um, when it comes to foreign policy, it's strange to see him take that combative stance. So I, I think that he kind of, I think he ended up hurting himself a little bit last night.
0: Yeah, and th- that was the one, you make a good point, because when he spoke out, no one else was speaking out. no and he he could have just let trump be trump but he had to throw his his um his two cents in and i don't think he needed to throw it in there
1: yeah and but you know you got to remember when it comes to anybody who's a fan of father or son paul um if you're a fan you're a fan and you'll be a fan after last night um i don't think that anybody who wasn't a ron paul or a, a rand paul fan the line to become one last night but his base is fired up and according to him and everybody you know according to all of his fans, he was the winner of the debate last night with, with the lowest talking time of anybody and the lack of coherent answers on, on where he stands on things. Um, I got to give him credit whatever he's doing, whatever he and his dad do to get the support that they get from from their clan it's it's impressive and those people are very passionate about both of them.
0: You're, you're correct on that because I know a lot of people, they're just Rand Paul or his father. They were just – they love that stuff. <laughs> but the other thing is that – how do you think the candidates dealt with two of the big issues probably going into this election is the economy and Obamacare?
1: Well, once again, on Obamacare, I don't think that anybody – I think everybody did a good job of voicing that they hate Obamacare and they don't want Obamacare. But again, nobody had a solution for what to do with Obamacare. And again, I think that's going to be something that moving through the debates and the campaign season, we're only going to get away with for so long. And at some point somebody's going to have to say, here's what I would do differently and have an actual plan rather than just hate on Obamacare all the time. I think that actually works against them. So whoever the candidate is that can put together a plan uh, that is logical and makes sense and get some third party support for why it would work, whoever the first one is to do that, I think scores some major points just for the fact that they're the first one out of the gate who offers a solution rather than more complaining about what we have in place right now. Yeah,
0: because no one really articulated anything. Okay, everybody knows Republicans don't support Obamacare. Right. And they make, they make their complaints against it. But they haven't said what they would do. But then the other thing that they should be pressed on, for, at least from the moderators, they always talk about repeal and replace. If, let's say, the Republicans win the White House in 2016 and they maintain the Senate at, I think they got 54 senators now, but they don't have 60, how would they repeal it if they don't have 60 senators and what would they replace it with?
1: Yeah, and, I, and that's the biggest question is, okay, let's say that everything else is working in your favor and you've got the votes to do it, then what? What happens after that? And nobody right now has a clear, concise uh, answer on how that they how they would handle that. And the first one who comes up with it scores some major points. As as far as the economy goes, um, I think it was Rick Santorum during the first debate. Th- this is a personal gripe of mine, and, and I wish that candidates would do a better job of articulating this when they're talking about the economy. They need to get out of the business of talking about the government creating jobs. I understand what they're going for. They need to explain the red tape that they would cut, the tax laws that they would change to make it easier. If they worded it to make it easier for private citizens, innovators, and entrepreneurs to create jobs, I think that that would come over a lot better than listening to a politician get up there, some of which who have never run a business before saying, don't worry, America, we're going to get in the White House and we're going to create jobs. I don't know how politicians create jobs. I know that how they cut red tape and change the tax codes to make it easier for other people to do it, but none of them frame it that way. And it's a personal gripe of mine that I get sick and tired of hearing it. It's very condescending, I think, and, and it makes them look completely out of touch that they have this high and mighty opinion of themselves that they're the one who are going to create those jobs.
0: And that's the thing that when I, I heard on both the, uh, the first debate and the second debate Being a small business owner When they talk about business They throw it in the lump of Corporate America right. And they don't talk to small business That's where middle America Or most Americans fall They don't fall with the big corporate uh, corporations Marco Rubio Touched on it with that one question mm-hmm. But in the first debate And this is for some reason Where Republicans just have a difficult time Expressing this they're asked, I can't remember which candidate was asked that. They asked, how would you end the, de- the dependency on some Americans on the government? Mm-hmm. And some of the candidates just, they, they don't seem to have a coherent answer to make it logical about, you know, we need better education, so we have better education opportunities, vocational training, whatever. They just don't seem to have an answer how they would fix that and then how they would deal with helping businesses mainly small businesses down to what Americans can relate to.
1: Yeah, and and that's, you know, the entitlement question and the small business question, I think are areas where Chris Christie and Donald Trump tend to flourish, not necessarily last night, not necessarily last night, but in general when they're talking about it because they both have the guts to kind of lay it out there that we need to stop incentivizing people to be on entitlement programs. Um, and a lot of the candidates unfortunately, never get to that place. We all know what needs to be done uh, to to get people off of entitlements, but there's not very many candidates who have the guts to make that statement that you know we need to make it less desirable uh, so that there's more of incentive for you to go out and get a job versus staying at home and collecting a welfare check. And I, and I think that's an area that nobody else really is brave enough the way Christie and Trump are to kind of venture into that territory, um, and, and, you know, remove the filter and, and tell it like it is.
0: Well, and that's a point because I think then somebody needs to explain or, because there's a lot of misinformation when it comes to entitlement. I mean, my dad, that's all my parents. That's all they had before they passed was social security. Mm-hmm. And when you talk to them, it was like, this is my money, and I remember uh, President Obama put um, Erskine Bowles. He was Clinton's chief of staff in his second term to run um, to figure out how to reduce the debt. Well, his mom was like ninety years old, and she says, "Hey, congratulations! Don't touch my Social Security or Medicare." Mm-hmm. And that's it was it's, it was telling because I think people need to understand there is a problem there, and this is. This is bankrupting our country.
1: Yeah. And and again, you know, I'm starting to sound like I work for Chris Christie, but, you know, he he was one of the only candidates last night who had a plan already in place. It's still pretty early on in the presidential uh, campaign season who had a plan in place right now or, you know, an idea on paper for how he would tackle that issue. And it was one that, you know, I agree with him on the means testing. I think that there are some people who just they don't need it. And and they shouldn't be blood-sucking off of it if they don't need it because they have other financial safeguards in place. And and that's kind of a gutsy position for him to take because there are a lot of people who have that attitude that I've paid into it, it's mine, it doesn't matter if I don't need it or not. Um, but But again, I think that set him apart last night that he was one of the only people up there who had... A plan on paper, not in his head. It was a big secret, like how Donald Trump is going to combat ISIS. He had it written down for people to see on how he would reform entitlements. And that really sets him apart. And if he keeps doing that, moving forward through the debates, I think he will continue to go up in the polls from where he was last night. And that was the
0: one thing that was a sharp distinction between when he got into it with uh, Mike Huckabee. He had a plan on the entitlement reform and at least... Put a coherent thing. This is what I want to do or this is what I want to go forward. And, again, just to let my listeners know, I don't work for any of these candidates. Right. No,
1: neither do just I. Throwing
0: it, just throwing it out, and neither does Ashley. This is just our objective opinions. But the other one that I liked, and, again, I go back to this, and, again, I'm not working for him, was Marco Rubio when he really had an answer for small businesses. And he really kind of laid it out. Well, here's are the problems with small businesses are facing. And this is how we could jumpstart this economy. And that personalized it to me because I am a small business and I could relate to the things that he brought up, especially trying to get capital and all the things that grow into growing a small business.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with you on that. I want to throw something back out at you. And I think we talked about this um, off the record earlier was. One of the things that I thought was so surprising between both debates last night, um, not so much from a candidate's perspective, but from the moderator's perspective, was that the issue of race relations and Ferguson and Baltimore played such a a very, very small role in the questions last night, never made an appearance even once in the 5 o'clock debate, um, and only showed up for one question in the second half of the 9 o'clock debate, And, and given how prevalent and what a hot topic that's been over the last year or so. I was really shocked uh that it that it commanded such a small presence last night.
0: No, I I I was when they asked that question, but when they did ask the question, they asked it to Ben Carson.
1: I know. I yes.
0: mean,
1: who <laughs> said I'm a neurosurgeon? What do I know? <laughs> Out of all the candidates, and I
0: would agree with you that it's been a, such a prevalent issue almost all last year and this year, and especially the last six years, and if you look at most of the polls, both Republicans, Democrat, liberals, and conservatives said race relations have gotten worse, but nobody really discussed that in any kind of meaningful manner except they asked Ben Carson, and he went into, I was the only one that I was a neurosurgeon doing an operation. Yeah. What do I care if they're black, white, or come from the planet Pluto?
1: Yeah, I think it was a little strange that Fox asked the only African-American candidate that question. I, maybe it's just me, and I'm not suggesting anything by it. It was just kind <laughs> of it was odd, um, and I'm surprised that they didn't pose the question for two reasons. One, I would have said to each of the candidates, if you had been president while this was happening, what would you have done differently to try – to fix the situation um, be there for all these different communities that were dealing with this and to make sure that the race relations within this country didn't implode on itself but I'm also surprised that they didn't utilize it as a cheap shot against President Obama I mean there was just nothing no. it was a flatline topic for both debates
0: Yeah, that was, it, that was just something that was never brought up and the one thing I, the other thing on this uh, besides this, the race relations they really didn't I mean, I know they criticized Hillary Clinton a lot. And I know they criticized Barack Obama a lot, but they really didn't go really at it with them.
1: No, they didn't. Um, I do, since you're bringing it up, you reminded me of something that I was thinking during the five o'clock debate. They did ask the one question toward the end of what the two words would be that you would use to describe Hillary Clinton. And I saw that as a complete missed opportunity by the Republican Party altogether that they didn't need to coordinate it but the candidates should have been perceptive enough to have coordinated it they got two words and the first person that answered said used the word untrustworthy and from there every other candidate should have jumped on that bandwagon as an opportunity to voluntarily unify to make one of their suggested words untrustworthy that would have sent such a strong message and they bombed on that it was such a missed opportunity that they all could have jumped on together Um, And really come at her like the firing squad that I mean, there are the Republican firing squad through the election is going to be the Republican candidates. And they missed that opportunity big time yesterday.
0: And the only other person who got a little good quip in was um, Scott Walker when he mentioned that Russia and China have more access to Clinton's server than the U.S. Congress.
1: Yep, there were fewer email server jokes than I was anticipating last night, which I was impressed on their ability to hold back the urge.
0: <laughs> yeah, I could see. I thought there was going to be more, but that didn't hit in. Finally, before we, we forget about some of these other questions, but the one two questions I wanted to ask you on that it's interesting for the Republicans, is how did you think they fared on two areas? Foreign policy, which we kind of mentioned a little bit earlier, and dealing with the Department of Defense.
1: Well, obviously foreign policy uh, was a big topic between both debates last night. And for the most part, the Republican candidates are are somewhat on the same page when it comes to, especially the Iran situation and ISIS. Um, I think they're you know, with the exception of maybe Ron Paul, who has his own theories of of how we interact with other countries in the world, I think everybody's on the same page that the Iran deal is a bad deal. You know, Carly Fiorina made that pretty clear. Um, I thought that her responses to that were were right on, you know, that we need to stand with our allies. We need to stand with Israel. We need to Coordinate with the allies that we have in the Middle East to deal with the situation and not give Iran more power than they need. And and you know again, she had the best answer as far as you know when you go in to negotiate, you know what your goals are and you don't back down from that. Otherwise, you give the enemy the upper hand.
0: Correct.
1: The other one that I thought had a really good comment about um, foreign policy, surprisingly, was Ben Carson, who maybe is the least versed in the topic was. Uh, I don't remember what the question was he was answering, but he transitioned at one point and said, "If I was going to destroy this country, here are the three things that I would do. And one was to pit e- pit groups of people against each other. I think the second was to leave office with everything in shambles. And the third was to allow our enemies to flourish and start to dominate the world stage. And, and I thought that just it was such a smart thing for him to say. And it surprised me when he said it, um, given that he's a little bit of a newbie on the foreign policy front. Correct. That I, I thought it was a really telling thing. And, and I hope that people were paying attention during it.
0: No, because I did catch that. And I thought that was very, very timely. The other qu- uh, part of it is when Chris Christie talked about we need to re. Know, re- um rebuild up our military because we're at the lowest level, and he gave some statistics and everything uh-huh the one thing that it's i think it's missing from the republicans i mean I've been in the military for thirty years retired mm-hmm. is it's time to reform how the military spends its money like the new f thirty five stealth fight, you know um, combat vehicle that the, the marine corps has the navy has a variation of it and so does the air force mm-hmm. that's like eight billion dollars for one weapon system yeah and i and they never seem to address the waste and abuse and why does it take so long to get weapon systems to the operating forces
1: I completely agree with you. Um, my, My dad is retired Marine Corps. I have a lot of friends and family that are in various branches of the military, and it's not a complaint that i only hear from one or two people it's definitely complaint that you hear from a lot of people that it's either the wrong kind of equipment it's old equipment or it's not getting to them fast enough and i'm sure that this is one of those cases where you can say follow the money because somebody's benefiting from whatever the contracts are that are out there right now Um, but whoever ends up being the commander-in-chief really needs to reevaluate that and you know you want to you want to save money long term in the military sit down with a group of these guys these men and women and figure out exactly what it is that they, that they need let's get those contracts going so that they can get equipment and training that they can actually use instead of spending all this money on things that they don't they're not even asking for or that isn't built specifically for the purposes that they need it. You want to save money in the long term, sit down with the people who are using this stuff on the front lines and let's get some good contracts out there for some good equipment, some good quality equipment that does what these guys are asking for it to do. And whoever takes center stage as commander in chief is going to have a very tough uphill battle to make that happen because I'm sure some of those contracts have been in place for a long time. Um, but it's an area that we really need somebody who's tough, who's not going to be afraid to sit down and make that happen.
0: And, and that's the thing that I, I wish the Republicans would answer because everybody knows they're big on defense. But a lot of times, like an example, the Marine Corps has the Osprey. The Osprey was, um, was first proposed when I was a junior in high school. I graduated high school in 1982. It finally hit the operating forces just a couple of years before I retired. Mm-hmm. And they're talking it was, it was canceled under Dick Cheney when he was secretary of defense under George Bush uh, Sr. But we just can't keep spending on all these weapons systems at the expense of our operating forces. And if we want to be this big military and be project power, we've got to have – some type of cost controls, and I wish the Republicans would have addressed those issues.
1: I agree, and unfortunately, I think that Republicans can div- can be divided into two classes of Republicans, and that is Republicans who are big on defense, and Republicans who are big on making money off of defense. Correct. And, and I, you know, we need to know, moving forward, which which candidate, are which one of those types of Republicans are each of those candidates, because I think we've had enough of the Republicans who are big on making money off of defense. We need some... Some who are are big on standing up for our men and women and getting them exactly what they need and worrying less about you know shaking somebody's hand and making a good contract and giving somebody a lot of money for it.
0: No, <clears throat> no, I agree, and we, it just it's got to because we people got to realize even when I was in the military that money is not ours. That's the taxpayers' money. Every time we do something, you spend something in government. That's the taxpayers' money. And you have to spend it accordingly and making sure that it goes for the defense of the country and not for the, def- um, the pocketbooks of somebody who has, who's in the political class.
1: Yeah, I think you're spot on on that. Now, the last, finally, the last question is, and this is
0: totally a, not from the Republican debate, what is your imp- impressions and the challenges ahead for Hillary Clinton, who is probably going to be the Democratic nominee and the Democratic Party?
1: Well, I think Hillary's uphill battle is, is, you know, the snowball is getting bigger on the thing that she's been battling so far is that people have a hard time relating to her. And the more that she tries to sell people on this idea that she's one of us and that she's an everyday person who struggled with finances and she lived paycheck to paycheck, it's getting more and more unrealistic, uh, especially as we're starting to hear from some of these Republican candidates. You know, even people like um, you know Lindsey Graham has a very has a very um, a very poor upbringing backstory that he likes to tell people about. You know, he's been there; he's he knows what it's like to live paycheck to paycheck uh, through his family struggles. Uh, Marco Rubio, the same thing. And I think the more that people get introduced to those types of candidates. Um, they're going to start to see, wow, there's an alternative to this. You know, there's actually people who have lived this way rather than than Hillary Clinton's version of paycheck to paycheck. You know, there's there's a difference between living paycheck to paycheck when it's a fifteen hundred dollar paycheck versus a fifteen million dollar paycheck. So maybe that's the delusion that she has in her head that she's lived one million dollar paycheck to the other. Um, but that – and the more that these polls start to come out on her, um, the number that I think is most important is not whether or not people are going to vote for her. It's, it's where people stand on her being so untrustworthy. Those numbers are now upside down. And right. as – you know, and you know this because you've worked in the consulting field. It requires a lot of money to be thrown at that problem to get it to go the other way. This is not a problem that's going to correct itself – on its own, unless she comes out and miraculously is now Mother Teresa. Um, but that's going to require a lot of money to be thrown at her image to try to turn that number around. That's a very, very heavy uphill battle that she's got ahead of her. And well, and she's got 17 candidates on the Republican side, and I've said this before and I'll say it again, who have basically armed themselves as the Republican firing Republican firing squad against Hillary Clinton. And they're going to be that way all the way through uh, the end of the primary season. Well, the thing that's
0: that Hillary has to worry about is I'm not sure where the Benghazi story goes. Okay. But let's leave that for another time. Mm -hmm. It's the, the found and Ron Fournier from the national journal mentioned this way before this scandal broke about the server. Uh He said the biggest uh, problem she's going to have is the foundation all the money it's raised from corporate America, the Wall Street, foreign companies, this latest scandal that came up with the UBS bank at um, Switzerland where she interceded. And then all of a sudden when it was done, this infusion of cash came to the foundation and to her husband. And what you said is to change that narrative where she's now seen in a positive light, but because the scandal keeps breaking every month or every couple of weeks, new emails are getting released, new things are going to be put forward in the public eye all the way up until January it's going to be very hard for her to change that narrative
1: yeah I think the challenge that the Republican candidates have and even her Democratic um, counterparts that are running against her is I you know I, I when Clinton cash the book came out I bought it and I read it and it's heavy stuff. I mean, you can't skim through that. You've got to sit down and read it and then reread the chapter to really understand what it is and all the spider webs that go out from Bill and Hillary Clinton and what all the pieces connect to uh, and and what it all means. And it's pretty bad, pretty heavy stuff. And the Republicans have to do a very good job. If they're going to hit her on this stuff, they're going to hit her on the email servers, they're going to hit her on Benghazi. They've got to be very strategic in how they portray those scandals because this isn't stuff you skim over with your morning coffee. This needs to be capsulized in a very easily digestible way because these are things that most people would have to sit down and really study for a while. You know, this they're not they're not emotional issues like where do you stand on gun control, where do you stand on abortion? These are things that require you to have some kind of knowledge on on you know following the money trail. Um, and that's the thing that I worry about with her and all these scandals is that some of this stuff is, you know, you have to really follow the trail. That people are going to get mucked up on it, and they're going to say, "Well, it's just another political scandal. Everybody has them. It's probably not that big of a deal." It is a big deal. Um, no, they've got to package it in a way that people can understand it.
0: Now, I've read that book, and you're absolutely correct. That is very difficult. You don't just read it and you're done with it. You, you got to really pay attention. Kind of go back. But I think the problem that Hillary's going to have is beyond all the scandals, I'm not sure she's the the best candidate or the most politically adept candidate like her husband was. Like recently, she went and got a haircut for $600. Mm-hmm. Well, how does most Americans don't get a $600 haircut? Right. And then her daughter, Chelsea, spoke at a university for 10 minutes and made $60,000. Mm-hmm. Well – that's where it's really going to resonate and then there was the the tweet not the tweet something on instagram during the debate she had pictures at a fundraiser in los angeles where she had kim kardashian and kanye west right well those don't put you into middle america that you understand what i'm going through now it'll be interesting monday she comes out with her um proposal on how to reshape or reform the student loan issue. Mm-hmm. It'll be interesting to see where she comes out on that and how does that really going to fix the problem or is that just going to tweak around the margins.
1: Yeah, and you know, in terms of Hillary, no matter where you stand on her husband, whether you agree with his politics or how he ran the country when he was president, there's no denying that Bill is a very charismatic person and you could hate the way that he governed um, but you still in some odd way I mean I'm a Republican and I still think the guy is charismatic he's a likable person no matter where you stand on his on his political stances mm. and Hillary does not have that charm no, no matter no. what you do to her she will never be charismatic Bill and that works against her but that coupled with the scandals that are coming out this irrational idea that she's relatable to everyday people with these excessive fees that they charge um, the $600 haircuts the, the rodeo corral around the press that's following her around her complete lack of willingness to talk to the press uh, since she's announced her candidacy for president. Those are all working together against her. um, And we know that we've got a long campaign season again with 17 candidates who are going to go against her. And then there are other just small things like I know next January, you've got a, a, a movie coming out on Benghazi that I'm sure is you know, going to raise some questions and probably not paint her in a, in a very good light. So she's got a lot of rocks rolling down the hill at her right now. And I don't think she's doing it for somebody who's been in the process for as long as she has. She's not doing a very good job. Uh, she's not doing the job that Bill would have done if combating those things.
0: But, uh, see, the one thing that you mentioned is, like you said, whatever you think of Bill Clinton's policies, there's been three presidents since World War II who are very charismatic speakers. Mm-hmm. They were John Kennedy, Ronald Reagan, and Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton was very – when he get into a room, he would connect with you. like Absolutely. He was speaking to you, and he was very charismatic. He had some political skills, but when Hillary gets up and speaks, even when she gave her second announcement address out in New York, it's not – it's like she's just given a speech – but it's not charismatic. She's not reaching beyond her base, and well, I just don't think she can connect with people, and that's hurting her.
1: And I guess it's hard to be charismatic to an audience of people that your team has hand selected, and you already know everybody's story and what they're going to say. But you know, she, I may maybe she's just gotten so comfortable in this that you know she thinks that she can get away with anything, and that she doesn't have to be unfiltered and a real candidate at this point. But I I think that, you know, for somebody, like I said, who's been in the process and been in politics and public life for so long, she's just doing so many things that you would think somebody on her team would say, look, we just can't do this. We're not going to be able to get away with this anymore. And she thinks that nothing's going to stick to her uh, moving forward. And and unfortunately for her, the poll numbers are starting to show otherwise.
0: Well, I think it goes back to – Let me see how it's put this is if you've been in the system for so long, sometimes you think that you're doing something right and you're doing something wrong and you don't get outside your comfort zone. You don't get outside your, cause she has the same advisors she's had for years. Mm -hmm. They were, they work for Bill now they're working for Hillary and they keep telling her, this is what you need to do. But they, even they haven't gone out and been with average Americans. They say that, and both sides do this, Republicans and Democrats. If you get so tight st- stuck in Washington or this political campaign, you just see the same people, and you say the same thing, but you don't really realize that you're putting your candidate in a bad light. And I just don't think Hillary sees it.
1: Well, and it, it's an arrogance too, and and Correct. you know, unfortunately for her, um, Hillary Clinton, as much as she wants to make history with this election. She's fighting against it a lot too. And if Barack Obama had not been part of the Democratic lineup in 2008, she most likely would have won that election and probably re-election in 2012. But she's facing a different animal this time and this is the election where people want the unfiltered Donald Trump style. They're tired of the rhetorical, benign conversations that politicians have been having for the last two election cycles, and they want something different. And what they want that's different is not Hillary. She would have fared much differently in 2008 with Barack Obama using the method that she's using right now, but she's in a different part of history at this point, and it's playing against her. Well, the way it's playing
0: against her is because in 2008 you had... Eight years of a Republican president, you had the war in Iraq, and then eventually what really propelled Obama into the White House, because people got to remember, they just remember he got in, but up until the financial collapse, it was neck and neck between him and McCain, and when the financial collapse happened, I mean, Franklin Roosevelt would have lost that election, Mm -hmm. and then he got in that way, and I think your, your, your assessment is correct, but today, now that it's after... It would be eight years after a Democratic president. The economy is not going to improve any between any now and then. Even the unemployment report today stipulated we're just marginally doing all right, but not breaking out.
1: Yeah, and and, and you know, keeping on keeping on the historical side of it, you know, the other thing that she's combating is that historically, in our country's existence, the the fact that. A sitting Democratic president could be followed after eight years in office by another Democrat, Democratic president. That's that's only happened a fraction of of the amount of times that we've had turnover between the political parties. So she's not only combating all of these other issues that she has to deal with, but statistically in our history, that's almost unheard of. It's only happened a couple of times. Um, so she has that element to deal with too. And that would be a huge win for the Democrats to pull something like that off. Um, But given everything else that she's facing, even if she was a perfect candidate, the odds would still be against her. But the fact that she's as flawed um, as she is, it it doesn't make the situation any better.
0: No, I would agree. And I guess we can keep continuing with this conversation (laughs) because this could go on forever. You,
1: You and I are dangerous. We'll just talk forever. There you go.
0: There you go. But I want to thank Ashley for coming on the show. And it was a lot to get your insight and your knowledge, because you are extremely knowledgeable about this topic. And it would be just, it was interesting to get your assessment of the different candidates, especially the candidates on both of the debates, the five o'clock and the nine o'clock hour. But I'd like
1: to thank Ashley for coming on the show and we would love to hear from you in the future. Absolutely. And I thank you for having me on the show. Thank you for what you do with it and thank you also for your service to our country in the Marine Corps. It's, uh it's a wonderful thing that you've done and and uh, I speak for a lot of people when I say thank you.
0: Hey, well, thank you for your father's service in the Marine Corps. I didn't know that he was in the Marine Corps <laughs> retired. <laughs> thank but you thank very you for much. that. And I would like to thank my listeners for listening to Ubaldi Reports. You can go to iTunes and Stitcher. Sign up. It's free. Continue to listen to these type of shows, and we're going to have other shows like this. And if you get a chance, go on Amazon or any bookstore, and you can get The New Business Brigade. It's currently a bestseller on Amazon. And The New Business Brigade, the premise of the book is why businesses should hire veterans in the untapped resource they represent. And if you want to learn more about national and international news, go to Ubaldi Reports and find out more. And again, I'd like to thank Ashley for coming on the show.
1: Thanks a lot, Ashley. Thanks, John. All right. Thank you.